November 2018, the Australian Government announced the Pacific Step Up, taking its engagement with the Pacific to a new level. Despite this shift, new research finds that many people in the Pacific are concerned Australia does not know how to engage successfully as part of the Pacific community. In this panel event at the 2020 Australasian Aid Conference, James Cox, Linda Kenny, Tess Newton-Kane and Gare henning Preston outlined the key findings of their research, which explored how Pacific Islanders from Solomon Islands, Fiji and Vanuatu perceive Australians and the government's policies and interventions in the Pacific. The Australasian Aid Conference is hosted by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University in partnership with the Asia Foundation. The panel is chaired by Leanne Smith, Director of the Whitlam Institute. Well, thank you all for coming along. I'd like to start off um, on behalf of the whole panel to say that we're very honoured to be here on the land of the Ngunnawal people and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land and we've got a long way to go in making justice. Um, welcome to our presentation of the research that we've been busy doing um, most of last year. Pacific Perspectives on the World, listening to Australia's island neighbours in order to build strong, respectful and sustainable relationships. My name is Leanne Smith and I'm the director of the Whitlam Institute at Western Sydney University. From my left here we have James Cox who's the executive director of Pacifica, Linda Kenny who has been part of our research team um, for Vanuatu, Dr Tess Newton-Kane from TNC Consulting and Griffith Asia Institute and Dr Geer Henning Predrusten who's um, in the School of Anthropology, a lecturer at Western City University. I just wanted to say at the outset a little bit um, about the purpose of this research. Um, for us at the Whitlam Institute, uh, this work falls under a body of policy research we are conducting called Australia in the World. And the focus of that research is really about uh, trying to make a contribution to more strategic, engaged and multifaceted foreign policy making um, in Australia. Obviously, foreign policy and global engagement was a huge part of the Whitlam legacy and it's one that we're very proud to continue to honour. My own interest in commissioning this research came about from moving back to Australia from being away working for the UN for about 10 years and really getting a sense coming back to Australia that um, talking to my, my Pacific friends and fr international friends working in the Pacific, that there seemed to be a disconnect between... Um, all of the investment and energy that Australia is putting into the region and how the investment is being perceived and welcomed and appreciated and understood. And so it's really that kernel of an idea that there's some kind of disconnect going on here that was the motivation for, for me to reach out to James at Pacifica um, to see if we could ask the question, what's going on here? And this research was intended to make a contribution to better understanding what, what disconnect we perceived. James, did you want to say something about Pacifica's interest? Uh, thanks, Leanne, and uh, thanks also to the Whitlam Institute for uh, engaging Pacifica to do this work. Um, Pacifica, which most of you haven't heard of, is a small and new um, NGO that's focused on peace building in the Pacific region. Um, and and for um, it was for us, it was a great opportunity to work with the Whitlam Institute on this particular piece of work. And you know, why? did a peace building organisation want to do this? The idea of exploring the question of, of, of how does dialogue work between Australia and the region is a really important underpinning for what the, the best 
relationships can be in the region, and those relationships can then go on to contribute to a more peaceful and secure Pacific for everyone. Um, and in a time when the region is increasingly contested by a large number of, of different actors and countries, and of course China is the, is the, the, the big news, by no means the only news in this area, for us, we wanted to learn more about the idea that there was something particular about the relationship between the region and Australia, which is important to um, all of our, our long-term welfare and security. So it's been a great opportunity for us to, um, uh, to test those ideas, and it's been a very interesting process with a great team. Mm. Um, so we'll get into the research now, but I just wanted to preface the report you have in front of you. Um, obviously, you won't have had a chance to look at it in any detail yet. We're very um, proud of and we stand behind this research, but I did want to say that this is um, pilot research for us, so it was really about proof of concept of the, the methodology that we were looking at um, in the three countries that we've worked in. The intention of the report is to make a constructive contribution to the foreign policy debate and the, and the conversations about the region and Australia's place in it. Um, but I would say that we've had quite a lot of positive feedback so far from people across the region, not just in the three countries that we've been working in, so we're very happy about that. So let's get into it. Um, Linda, can you lead us off um, by giving us some sense of, of all of what you saw in Vanuatu? What were the things that struck you about the conversations that, that were had? Um, so I don't know why, but the voice is not working with me. Um, but I'll try my best. Um, when I went out to conduct these school discussions, first thing that they told me, oh, thank you, we are really, really appreciate the chance to give us. So, you know, because we, the understanding is that most times the opportunity fails to just a high level type of conversation to become but this, um, the method here that was used here in this research was giving the opportunity to, to community people to also add their voices to also give their concerns about how they think how they should be contacting the sample Vanuatu or with other Pacific Island countries. Um, so yeah, they were very grateful that the space was given to them as well to also keep their concerns and they had some really good, they did, they gave us some really good recommendations in how they think this relationship can get, you know, can go into the relationship between Vanuatu. I'll show you an also, but I can only speak for one also because I did the first thing. But yeah, it was a good conversation. Thank you. Um, Linda, when we were talking earlier, um, you, you made some really interesting comments about the context of Australia's relationship with countries in the Pacific in the context of, a, of the domestic crisis that was going on here over Christmas and continues for a lot of Australians about the bushfires. Did you want to say anything about that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Vanuatu, before I say something about that, the countries that were given out to the people who discuss the relationship they have with them, they had so much to say about Australia compared to China and other countries, and I don't know why. But I think it is because they regard Australia as a family, as um, somebody that's really close to them, and that's why I have lots to say about Australia. But we end to, you know, I'm still question, uh, from Vanuatu, I just have to say that, you know, the bushfire just went past through, and we are very, like, from Vanuatu, Australia is part of our family as well, so 
I requested him by much. I just wanted to say, you know, we are very sorry that some of the families they had to go through all those different, um, you know, the chaos and all those things they had to go through. So, yeah, just to say, um, yeah, we acknowledge that you've been through a really hard time, but let's hope that these discussions will continue to build that relationship that we will continue to have. With. Thank you, Um Dear, I thought I might ask you um, to talk a little bit about the methodology of this report, and I, I'm feeling people would be very interested in the participant-led nature of the questions, but maybe even the questions that were asked. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, have to, I have to apologise for my voice as well. We'll see how it goes. But my weekend was not only near as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, no, look, I think you can see the whole methodological setup for what we try to do. It's really dictated or really informed by this notion that we were interested in listening rather than dictating the terms for, for, for discussions. So the uh, starting point for the whole method methodology was to go in and listen and hear what people were interested in talking about. So we started with some very loose prompts really about um, getting our respondents in a, in a qualitative manner to talk about what mattered for them or, uh, 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 or how did they see themselves in the region as communities and as countries and as peoples and then um, how did they see um, Australia in the region um, so that was the starting point for the discussion um, and the implication of that of course is that it is the, the strength or the quality if you want of the data and the depth of data rather than the um, number of responses that was important for us um, and that of course is a, a uh, common principle in all qualitative research. Um, and it has a, uh, without going into too much detail, I mean, it has a uh, theoretical grounding, of course, what we call a grounded theory in the sense that uh, rather than coming in with preconceived ideas about what key concepts and key theories and key ideas that we wanted to impose on the research, uh, it starts off with empirical data and that then informs our conceptualization and the theorization of things. And that also meant that we had, rather than a random samples of, of people we talked to, we had a, a purpose, purposely selected groups of people we spoke to. So we used local research partners to identify uh, community groups, uh, including dedicated um, groups of youth and, and dedicated focus groups for women. Um, and we tried to get a, a, a broad spectrum of community voices um, and then we combine those focus groups or those community consultations or whatever you want to call it uh, with what we identified as key informant interviews, which was in-depth interview data with um, approximately 10 um, well, experts broadly defined in, in the field of, sort of uh, public policy or, or, or community relations or foreign policy or, or whatever in each country. Um, and that's all that okay, right. I do as an introduction. <laughs> Um, I'm happy to take questions and elaborate more later. Shouldn't have said it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tess, I think um, you're going to lead us through the three key findings of the research. Yeah, thanks, Sam. So before I move on to the key findings, I guess I'll just preface that by saying um, that this has been a very, it's been a very exciting project to be part of. It's been, it's been amazing working with. A multi a multi-person team across four countries. If we include this one, so you know it's been um, it's been fabulous to be able to work with 
such a diverse group of people and to really benefit from that opportunity to share our thinking and, and share our responses to, to all parts of this process. So, you know, what you've got in front of you is very much a, a product of a lot of hours and conversations and in, on various formats. So it's been, it's been a, really, um, a really important journey that we've all been on. And I think what came out from it for me was that these conversations which is here has just outlined, we, we provided as light a touch as we could in order to give people some, some structure to work with, but really create spaces that they could use for themselves to take forward conversations that mattered to them about things that they cared about. And what came out of that was a very rich set of data um, I think we all feel very honoured with the trust that was placed in us by the people that participated in this research. They shared, they were very generous with their time and they were very generous with their thinking and they shared with us quite honestly and openly about things that they cared about and I think that that's reflected, or I hope, I hope that that's reflected in what we've presented here. And I hope that for, for those of you who are well-versed in working in the Pacific, I hope you will feel that we have done a good job of representing what we all know about the diversity of the region, that we haven't tried to essentialise things, that we have presented the data in a way that indicates that there are complexities here, that there is nuance, and that there are multiple conversations going on. And simply for those of you that are maybe coming to thinking about the Pacific for the first time or early on, I'm not going to make any apologies for that because the Pacific is a very diverse region and, and it was very important to us that we made sure that that was reflected in what we have here. So there are three key messages that we, that we feel arises from the conversations that we've been involved in. And the first is that when it comes to Pacific Islanders view of relationships with other countries and particularly the view of the relationship with Australia what the focus is and what the, and particularly what the future focus is is on improving the quality of the relationship so the quality of the relationship matters more than the quantity the quantity of announcements or the quantity of projects or the quantity of aid money what people are looking for is a, is a deep high quality, nuanced relationship. One that is multifaceted, one that pervades all areas of people's lives and experience, and one that they can be reassured is going to be around for a long time, that isn't going to fade away when a particular geopolitical moment may or may not pass. The second key message, and I'm going to ask Linda to, to add to this, is that when we spoke to the people that participated in the research, they made it very clear to us that for them, values and norms and the ways of doing things matter, and they matter a lot. They matter to the point where um, an ability to do things well or to do things in ways that are culturally resonant it is very much appreciated, and the inverse is true. Linda, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Um, just to add on to what this is saying, I, I think if you look at the title of here, it's, it's, it says listening to Australia's island neighbors in order to build strong, respectful, and sustainable relationships. That's all something like really. If we want a relationship to work well, then you need to put time into it, you need to put effort into it, not just coming with 
know what you think is right, what you think is 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 a priority, but taking the time also to listen to people to tell you that their priorities are how to do it, and also engaging them to and, and you know coming up with a plan that both are really happy with. And yeah, I think I just say that you know. You have to engage with them in a very meaningful way. Okay, thank you. The third key message is that as we sit here now and as we look to the future, Australia is one of many countries that Pacific Island people see as being partners for them. They see as their partners now and they see as their partners going forward. So this is the the um, this area of complexity, this uh, multiplicity of engagement is something that is very well established and it's not going away anytime soon. And neither is there any appetite on the part of the people that we spoke to to see that change. They see a role for different partners, including other Pacific Island countries, including New Zealand, including China and other partners. They see that there are roles for all of those to play, as well as Australia. But it's, it's, very, it's very important that we stress that the, the Australian relationship is well, it's very important. Um, it is, it, there is a very strong desire for that relationship to remain important within the region. And I think that the apparent paradox between us saying this is an important relationship that everybody values and what we will read in the report around concerns about that relationship and possibly critiques of that relationship that what that, is, what that is telling us is Pacific Island people value this relationship and they value it so highly that they've done some thinking about how it can be better. And that is what they want. They want it to be better. They see things that they need to be done on the part of their governments and their countries in order to make it better. And they see things that they would like to see done on the part of Australia. And before I hand back to Leanne, I will just say that a number of you will read this and you will find yourself thinking, well, I've heard this before. And you have heard it before. You've heard it from people like Katerina Tewa and Greg Fry and Steve Ratuba because they have been saying this for a long time. So we are not saying this for the first time. We recognise the contributions that they and others have made and we hope that by adding this particular version or this particular iteration of those sentiments at this time and in this space that we can join our voices with theirs to take this forward. Thanks. Um, yeah, sure, go ahead, James. Um, I just wanted to add something on to what Tess was saying. And like one of the, the things about this, this, these conversations that we had was it became apparent that you know in, in, in general terms your the, the Pacific Island people that we spoke to had far more thoughtful opinions about Australia than most Australians had about them um, and this manifested in all sorts of different ways but you know they, they, they just they um, had a deep understanding and appreciation of the shared history uh, between Australia and the region um, and some, and for good and ill, they had a very strong sense of um, you know various forms of community um, between the Pacific and the region. And um, I'm going to flag something that I'll be able to talk about more later. They are 
were very um, acutely aware of the ways in which Indigenous Australians are and represented. So um, that that the, the the reflectivity that we got and the way in which some of these very sensitive issues were were communicated quite um, with care to us as as the as the interviewers was something that really stuck with me coming out of the whole process. Mm. So they were the, the three key findings. So just to summarise them for you again, quality more important than quantity. Um, we're not the only game in town. There are other partners to play with. Um, and how we engage respectfully and reciprocally really matters. So from those three key findings, um, we developed four suggested recommendations for how we could address those challenges. But I also wanted to say at the outset, when you've had time to read the research and look at the report, if any of you have better recommendations or other suggestions for how to address those three messages, we'd be very glad to engage with you about how to take them forward. Um, so let me come back to you, um, Tess, to share the first recommendation. Okay, thanks. So the first recommendation um, is headlined as shift gears on the step up. And I think what what became very apparent was that the, the step up, which wasn't referenced by name particularly, but this sense of, certainly there was a very strong sense of Australia is paying more attention than it's maybe done in the recent past. And this is something that we are generally happy about. But what we, the sense that we got was that this, the step up has been framed or the step up has been implemented or rolled out in a way that makes it something that Australia is doing to or possibly for the Pacific. And what's needed for the step up to, to build these sustainable relationships, which Australia has said it wants, is this needs to become something that is done with the Pacific. That, and we heard when Linda referenced the bushfires and when we saw the Vanuatu government hand over money and the Papua New Guinea Defence Force send people and people push wheelbarrows through the streets of their towns to collect Kina and Solomon Island dollars and Vatu to send to Australia. The message there is we're all in this together. We care about you and we want to be able to help you. We want to share these challenges. These are shared challenges and we want to work together. And that's what came across in this research as well. So it's about changing, changing not just the messaging, not just the rhetoric, but actually changing the underpinning premise to something that this is something that we are doing, with, or Australia is doing with the Pacific. And that requires a bit of stopping and listening and recognising that, yeah, we need to make sure everyone's voices are being heard. Thank you. Um, and you, you want to take the second one? Sure. Um, one thing that um, also sort of popped up in, uh, in all research interviews, at least my research interviews in Fiji, and as soon as we came home and started discussing this, uh, we realised this was true across the board. That was that our respondents or people in the Pacific that we spoke to um, um, always said that, that Australia doesn't really understand the Pacific as well as they think they do. Um, and I think uh, had they experienced that, was often through, you know, how uh, they said that, or they blame that lack of understanding or that disconnect, perhaps, as Leanne has pointed it, uh, uh, they blamed, um, uh, or that was to blame for how some uh, aid projects, for instance, uh, were ineffective and, you know, it could be, you know, the sort of uh, problems with 
engaging locally or you know there are the wrong sort of things that were funded or the wrong people that are spoken to a lot of this had to do with the lack of pacific literacy uh, in, in australia so a key recommendation for us then is to invest in pacific literacy and i think um but the way we conceive of that is of course is that investing in pacific literacy will include you know strengthening education formal education um, on, on university levels of course but obviously in, uh, uh, prior to that as well, but also what we might call I I informal education, right through you know uh, media, for instance, investing in media, and so we, so people are more aware of the Pacific um, language training. And I mean, this again, this came very often up against uh, uh, in, among our respondents when they thought about Australia's lack of Pacific literacy was often compared unfavourably to uh, uh, actors from other countries. Um, you know, where they said all the countries sent in people that had good language, Pacific language skills, for instance, or better Pacific language skills, uh, and had done uh, more training. That was their perception anyway. Um, so those are a lot of the sort of formal side to Pacific literacy. But I also think it would be a mistake to think of Pacific literacy as only limited to so teaching languages and histories and, and, and skills. It's also about uh, a change in culture. Uh, across all levels, and, uh, and, and uh, a, a, a shift, a cultural shift in Australia, where we learn to see, or we say, I'm sort of, I'm a token, or well, not really an Australian, but I'm here at least. But yeah, no, I, I was, so Australia learned to see themselves as part of the region, um, and Australians learned to Australia learned to see that how Australia's future is sort of so deeply intertwined with the future of the region. I think that is uh, uh, the biggest part and the most important part um, of developing stronger Pacific literacy. Um, another, uh, and one way I think this can also be done is to mobilising some of the human and cultural resources one has in the country. And again, you know, the point about mobilising indigenous Australian links, cultural links to Pacific peoples, I think that's one way to go. But also, of course, mobilising um, the Pacific diaspora communities much more effectively uh, um, to, um, to use the, uh, the ties they have um, uh, to their countries and to their peoples and so forth. So that's um, uh, part of what we mean by um, developing Pacific literacy. Thanks, Dear. Um, so I've, I was asked to share the third recommendation with you and I, I'm a bit a bit nervous about doing it because it seems like one of the more unattainable recommendations we make at this point in time. That's why we give it to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so this was feedback from our participants that, um, to use a familiar phrase, Australia needs to get its own house in order. And you will not be surprised to hear that the main issue that came up in that regard was obviously around climate policy and feedback from participants that they're really looking for a more collaborative and strategic approach by Australia to what is a shared problem globally, but of course very presently a shared pro problem in our region. Maybe the one that struck me as more surprising and interesting was the point about the lack of visibility, the lack of representation and the lack of engagement with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Australia. Um, so. A sense, I think, across all three, all three countries we spoke to, that that when the people in these countries are looking to engage with us, that's something that's missing from the face of Australia and from the contact with Australia. And and I guess we were all thinking that it's a, a missed opportunity, at the very least, um, that Australia might be able to do something more practical about. But I think 
maybe a broader point, I wanted to share a quote with you from one of the participants. Um, there was also feedback about Australia and Australia's national identity. How does Australia see itself as a country? How does Australia see itself in the world? And obviously, how we, how we engage with our First Nations people is a big part of that. Um, but also, how do we represent ourselves in multilateral fora or other regional fora? Um, so one of the quotes that I wanted to share that was of relevance to people in the Pacific about how we conduct our bilateral relations is this national identity question. And one participant said, although we are from the same region, the Pacific Islands and Australia rarely speak with one voice. When you see international meetings, Fiji and other Pacific countries are sitting on one side of the table, while Australia, New Zealand and the US are always sitting over there. That's, as a, as a UN person, that struck me as being very obvious but pertinent as well. So the fourth recommendation uh, from our research, James is going to share with you. Yeah, um, before I launch into the fourth one, I'm just listening to, to Gary, Gary and Leanne, like there's something about the way in which Indigenous people are represented in Australia and also the way in, in which Australians work out, work with Pacific Islanders is, is um, sort of aspects of, of the same issue. Um, I was having a flip through the agenda for this conference um, and just doing some basic arithmetic. And you know, across all of the dozens, dozens of panels, there were um, certainly fewer than 10 Pacific Islanders uh, who, who I, I found. I mean, there could be some, some I, I missed because you don't, not every name tells a story. But like, the numbers were certainly um, a long way down from what, from what, is, from what is possible. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't looking for um, Indigenous Australians, but uh, I don't think the numbers would be better there either. Um, so there's that sort of thing where, you know, we all need to be very conscious um, about the kind of representation that, that, we, that we bring into the forums over which we have control. Um, and so which I guess in a way leads into the fourth recommendation, which was about leveling the, leveling the playing field when it comes to access. And so the recommendation was talking about you know, visa access and work access to the country, but also access for um, Pacific Island products, um, trade opportunities. And the, it was particularly striking the way in which Pacific Island, Pacific Islanders and Solomon Islands, where I was, um, talked about this, this issue and, and you know, there are a whole range of, of different things. There are the, uh, the cost burdens which are very high for a Pacific Islander trying to get a visa coming to Australia when people from well-off countries pay zero to come to come and enjoy this place. Um, there were the administrative bureaucratic hurdles that they experienced, um, particularly when the only processing centre for the applications were in the region was in Fiji, um, of the places we spoke to. Uh, then once they actually get to the border, that there are various ways in which Pacific Islanders felt as though they were being treated as second-class citizens. Some of those stories were unpleasant. Other ones were more subtle, just like the, you know which line is it that you're asked to go into when you're queuing for immigration, those sorts of things. So those sorts of things there are things which, in a sense, would be really easily fixed if Australia chose to to manage some of those those immigration processes in different ways. Um, and alongside that, um, labour access, a very complicated story around labour access. Some country, some Pacific Island countries uh, manage the labour relationship with Australia better than others. Some schemes are perceived as being better than others. Um, so the, the, the seasonal worker program 
generally not particularly well regarded, uh, and, and, and the renewal program is, is um, more positive received, especially in Vanuatu. But even, even then, um, what I was talking earlier about Pacific Island that having long memories, um, the issue of, of blackbirding, you know, the, the legacy of South East Island has been brought, brought to Australia to do, to do work in Queensland and in South Wales a century ago. Was brought up a number of times, and uh, there was a, you know, this had this uh, the way we were treated hasn't been recognised. You know, other people when they were brought into certain countries, stayed and, and became uh, parts of society. Like in, Indian people in Fiji, in particular, were referenced in that way, um, as opposed to South Sea Islanders who were essentially sort of ignored and sent home or, or pushed to one side. Um, the sense that we helped to build your country, and yet we don't have a state now. Those sorts of things were all part of that. So some of the ways in which the current labour schemes are being received is as a continuation of that legacy. Um, so those are, those are sort of the things that are, that are behind some of that sort of critique. Thank you, James. Well, that's, that's all from us in terms of presenting what's in front of you. Um, we've got about half an hour now for questions and comments. I'd just ask, um, would you mind identifying yourself before you ask your question? And Oh, yeah, and wait for the microphone so it's all on the record. Um, we welcome questions and comments, but if you make the comments not too lengthy so that we can get a range of views. Uh, thanks for that uh, presentation. I was wondering as to whether the research identified any uh, differences in the way that New Zealand is seen from the way that Australia is seen. Mm -hmm. and, and possibly when you're responding to that, uh, is, if there is a difference, is it reflective of the islands that the research was focused on compared with other parts of the Pacific? Because uh, as you've said, I'll take three questions at a time. Thank you for that. Anyone else have any? Thank you. Uh, which countries was the research done in and why did you pick those countries? Suppose you know, like, I just did geopolitical question. Why did the boat wheel include with Solomon Islands? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we'll, I'll just, re, re, <laughs> just recap those questions. Um, which countries and why? We might start there. Um, differences in perceptions in relation to New Zealand. I would add China to that because it's another country where we gauge some difference in, in perceptions and whether those differences in perceptions are, are limited by the countries that we did the research in. And then the geopolitical question, which I'm sure is fresh in everyone's minds. Yeah, I'm not to simple one. Um, uh, the research in, in Fiji, Vanuatu, and Solomon Islands, and uh, there were several reasons for it. One is that all of those three countries had uh, uh, different, but uh, all of them had a long-standing and complex relationship, historically and culturally, and so forth, with Australia, um, and, and, and ongoing. They're also all, uh, all three relatively sort of big place in the region. Um, it also corresponded with our respective fields of experience uh, um, of, of working there um, as we were able to. Um, it really fitted with the me methodological approach we had as well. We were, we were really intent on starting the research from the, from the starting point of local expertise. So we started in a place where, where, where we knew people, where we had established research contacts um, and, and we could get going from a, 
local staffing conferences. Who wants to take the New Zealand and potentially China? China? Um, I can do that one, but do you want to do the both of the ones? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the short, the short answer is is that, that I mean, the Bougainville bit was an outcome of the, um, the questions that we asked the participants. So this was Solomon Islands, and if you were you know, living in Western province, then Bougainville is, um, you know, as they said, it's a canoe paddle away. Um, so when we were asking questions about, you know, where are you from? Tell us, tell us about who you are. And people would articulate multiple entities. You know, my parents, one was from Malaya, one was here. None of them said, yeah, you know, mum was from, from Bougainville. So that's why on that map, Bougainville is there as part of that thing. Uh, but we would love to do something in Bougainville, but we weren't there. Um, so in terms of um, the comparisons with New Zealand, and I can touch on the China question as well, there were several references to that. Now, I think what needs to bear in mind is that these three countries are in Melanesia, and they all have established relationships with New Zealand, and in all of them, New Zealand was mentioned as a key partner. I think it would be a different conversation if we were to do this research in Samoa and Tonga and Niue, which are much closer to New Zealand um, politically and, and in terms of how their relationships work. So definitely there were comparisons with New Zealand. Um, in general, those comparisons were of the nature along the lines of, to, to sort of encapsulate it very quickly, New Zealand does this better. And the, that refers to a number of things, including, which comes back to the issue around the invisibility of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, because one of the things that they point to in New Zealand is when Minister Peters comes, he brings Maori and Pacifica people with him. We see Maori and Pacifica people working in their high commissions. They are much more present. They are much more um, a focus of policy. Domestically, they are much more, they, they have a much higher profile. So that was definitely that. The, the, the reference, the comparison with China is, is of equal interest, well, is, is interesting and is slightly more complex. But I think there, is, there was certainly a number of references along the lines of the way China operates in the region. It's not that China does things the same way as Pacific Islanders do. So it's not that China is doing Pacific culture, whatever that might mean. It's that there are ways of, the ways in which China operates, there are aspects of that which appear to resonate well with aspects of Pacific culture. And those are generally recognized and acknowledged. Um, in, in, a, in a lot of spheres. That is not to say that there aren't significant concerns about the role of China in the region, because there are, um, and they, you know, we articulate some of that in the detail of what's in front of you. But there are certainly, certainly people are able to point to interactions with China and Chinese people that they find easier to deal with than interactions with Australia in some situations. There are no there are no heads of generalizations around any of this. Any more questions or comments? I'm sadness. Thank you. Independently government consultant that works across the and and particularly with the media. When I first looked at the program I was I used the word curious um, to um, um, a news agency that I sometimes write for about the panel 
and um, the things that there certain lines that struck me in your executive summary, which um, um, about Pacific peoples themselves having reclaimed their own voices, um, that the Pacific step up has somewhere to go before the region's own voices voice as equal weight. That the step up, while welcome and well intentioned, has been conceived as an external initiative. While I appreciate what your research is about, um, it does disturb me. And I'm not a Pacific Islander, only a fourth generation Pacific Islander of an Asian background, married to an indigenous region, so you could say I'm not a Pacific Islander either. But you know, it concerns me that on your panel, um, the Pacific Island voice is just 20%. If the Pacific Islanders are going to talk about their perspectives or their relationship with Australia, it is day and age. There is absolutely no reason why articulate Pacific Islanders and Australians can't get together in a room on a panel and talk to you about you know, their concerns, their common concerns, and issues like that if you're going to be critical of the Australian step-up thing and you know, sort of very Australian focus. And you've got to also look at yourselves. Thank you. But bring the Pacific voices to rooms like this to speak to you, you know, with voices. I will respond to that. We'll just take a couple more questions <coughs> and come back to it. Um, my name is Jennifer. Uh, my question, I want thank you for the research. I haven't read of the contributions or the document, but just out of interest, how much of the research was conducted with Okay, thank you. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for the presentation. My name is Anna Public Agency. I just have a follow-up on Jen's question, which is really around the, the methodology and the data, and looking at how um, how this is aggregated, just to get a sense of, of the different the layers of the techniques as well, and um, whether you found that those with a different proximity to Australian aid and policy, whether their views differ from people who are participating in seasonal work programs, compared to tourists on cruise ships, so interested in the dissemination. Okay, thank you. We'll just take one more because um, this lady in the front row was waiting. Uh, thank you. My name is Asenati Chantu. I work at Sustainable. Uh, a consulting firm here in Canberra. I'm from Samoa and I really must thank you for this uh, very important research and its findings. Uh, I like uh, Tess's uh, point about this kind of work being, you know, it's not new, uh, findings, sorry, not new. Uh, there's been other uh, people, uh, scholars and, and academics who have worked in this space. And um, this actually, I think, has added to that uh, space and that uh, voice, um, trying to build on um, relationships uh, that we, the Pacific Islanders have had with Australia. Um, my only small point is the, the second finding on the values and norms and ways of doing things that matter and really matter, and matter a lot to the Pacific. Um, I was thinking a bit more about, you know, the idea of the Pacific as not a homogenous group. Uh, so whether there was, were other kinds of voices, women's groups, uh, and that, how do they define the, the sort of the norm that we refer to here? Um, and the second final point, the final point is that I was looking at this, it's a bit misleading to me, Pacific perspectives on the world, 
and it seems like the world is Australia. <laughs> about representation of Pacific Islanders in the, in the socialisation and discussion of this research, apart from the participation in the, in the actual research itself, um, how, we, how the research engaged with, engaged with government representatives on the methodology, a bit more detail on the disaggregation, um, how did the responses trend across different groups of people interviewed, and then the, on the values, values and norms piece, how does the research account for the fact that, that no one within one of these societies, let alone across the region, these are none, no, there's no homogeneity there? Um, you want to start? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start and I'll take that last one and then Claire will take the, the middle two. Yeah. So that issue around the, the norms and values um, was was probably the most challenging um, bit to deal with uh, conceptually, and essentially for the reasons that you've raised. Because what we didn't want to do, we were very careful, what we hope we, we were very careful to do, is we didn't want to say, this is a homogenous thing. If you could, we, didn't, we didn't want to say, here's a checklist, just do these things and you'll be right when you go to the Pacific. So this is not about trying to essentialise Pacific culture and Pacific norms. Neither is it an attempt to somehow flatten out all the, the nuances and the arcs of the, the, um, the diversity and the complexity. What we were trying to do is we were trying to say that when we listened to the, the people that took part in this research, even with across the diversity and in countries where there is a lot of diversity within the country, we did hear references to certain things come up again. Things around reciprocity, reciprocity of trust, reciprocity of interest and care. We heard things about an appreciation of culture. So even if my culture is different from your culture, Pacific Island people said, but we, we all appreciate everybody's culture and we want to see we want to celebrate culture, we want to celebrate our culture, we want to share with other people celebrating their culture. So it was these sorts of refrains, if you like, that we've tried to capture in this sense of how, how you do things and being able to be, I guess what we're hoping, what, what the sense that I got from the participants was their hope for the future of these relationships is that Australians and Australia can feel increasingly comfortable being in spaces where these things are going to inform what happens. They're going to inform who's there, they're going to inform who speaks, they're going to inform what food you eat, they're going to inform what entertainment you're involved in and how you participate in that. And there's just a sense, the sense that I got was that people were bemused and disappointed that Australia and Australian people could not be at ease in those spaces, and that's what we were trying to tap into with that. Does that answer your question? Uh, uh, this um, if there is one, one consequence of our approach, of course, that we're interested in uh, talking to people who are active in civil society and people have, have and get their opinions on the relationship to Australia and sort of government policies, that there is a bias 
towards people who had thought about these things and sort of went, oh, we're, uh, we're engaged. And so we had some, uh, a lot of the community focus groups, of course, they were in communities that were already in contact with our local research partners, for instance, that had uh, worked um, uh, with particular programs or consultation programs and so forth. And all our uh, well, uh, were identified locally in as, as key informants. Um, there's also a bias there, of course, of people that uh, civil, uh, civil society representatives or people who have experience in uh, diplomacy or uh, um, academia, um, human rights sector, uh, so those sort of people. So uh, uh, there's clearly the majority of respondents were people who were engaged in this broad field, I suppose, of the, the relationship between their own community and the world and the relationship between their own community and Australia. Um, that, uh, does that answer that question? Or was it more? So would you be able to cut the data differently and say, well, these are the people in the government who have this particular view and these are the rural areas and these are the people in the rural areas? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we have been easily cut data friend, and, you know, we had specific focus group for people that live out of, or out of capital or in rural areas, for instance, each, in each other country. And specific group, uh, or youth group, or young people's group. A specific women's group. So we have um, uh, uh, distinct different groups of data from all of that. Um, and they are again distinct from uh, um, from all the key informant interviews. In terms of um, who were key informants in each, each country, there were, uh, there were differences there between countries. Um, in Fiji, for instance, we uh, didn't talk to any politicians. Um, yeah, that's, uh, well, we did all the places, I think, ex-politicians and current politicians. Well, in Fiji, we did not talk to. Um, well, that's right. We could say they didn't talk to us. Exactly, the intention was to consult that. that but uh, uh, in all countries, there were a broad... Uh, uh, well, the broad intention was to consult with government officials, people working in the civil society, uh, and academic experts. Private sector. Yeah, exactly. I exactly. always forget private sector <laughs> sometimes. But yeah, private sector representatives of business councils and things So let me take the, that first and very important point. Um, you're absolutely right, and we could be doing a lot better. All I, would, all I can offer you is that um, we worked with local research partners in all three countries. Mm -hmm. And we conducted expert consultations, one in Suva and one here in Canberra. And as the Whitlam Institute, we could only afford to bring over one of our local partners, and we're, we're very glad to have one here, even if she's lost her voice. <laughs> um, but you're right, we could always do better, and we will try to. Oh, can I add? Yeah. Linda was, I'll, I'll be Linda's voice for a moment. She was saying, also private sector, that was one of the other groups that we were keen to, to hear from. Um, and like the, the question about, about government participation, like one of the things going in was if you're in government, especially if, if you're you know, a, mem a, a member of the government party that is actually in power at the time, then you already have a voice. Um, so we didn't, we didn't exclude MPs by any means, but we didn't seek them out either. Um, so in that way, like uh, the, you know, getting people who were, um, 
um, community workers from Chalisol province alongside um, the head of, of Honiara Civil Society all the organisations alongside um, former MPs and bureaucrats was one of the things that we particularly were keen to do to, to get that broader, broad representation. Um, and the comment about the title of the report, I mean, it's, it's a pain point. Uh, um, that, and it's, it's inevitable that when we're talking about it, we're focusing on sort of what about Australia stuff. But in fact, the conversations were, uh, you know, probably 50-50 in, in terms of the amount of time that was spent, you know, this is us, this is who we are, this is where we're from, this is, you know, um, the, the, the land and water in which we're based, and this is, this is how we see the world. And then we cut, like, you know, the one, I guess, the one um, shaping question that we asked rather than the open one was, so what about Australia? Um, and that, that was the nature of the piece that we were dealing with. So it, you know, it's, it's a contradiction that's, that's, that's in there, but the, the substance of the work is more balanced than what we're able to communicate here. Yeah, I, I mentioned the questions earlier, but if I'm right, Tess, the questions were, how do you see your country now? What do you want for your country in the future? How do you see the way your country, your country engages with the world? How would you like that relationship to be in the future? And then how do you see your country's relationship with Australia now? And what would you like it to be into the future? So, yeah. Um, I'm Congratulations on a great project. Uh, for those of us who study geopolitics, this is great research because it's springboards with many other briefings because we really don't know what's going on there. Um, you know, and now our research is very particular on a few groups of people, so this is great work. Um, don't I do have some questions around the questions because it does indeed seem that it's, the responses tend to be negative rather than positive, which is one question I was quite interested in knowing from your research is what is Australia doing right? Especially in a time when we're trying to reconfigure the engagement, where the engagement can be precise. And so that question I didn't find from your report is what actually is Australia doing right? Okay. Other than the laundry list of what's not going right, yep. which we all know in this room. Yep, we will respond to that. There's Tess, or do you want to take that one or Tess? Tess, okay. Anyone else? Hello, I'm Christina from DEFA. Um, I have a particular question just in relation to focus groups and how much of the discussion focused on um, people's interactions with Australians in general? Like where, what groups did these Australians come from? Was it Australian government? Were you talking about expats living in the country or tourists or people working in NGOs? Was there any sort of differentiation in that, that case? Okay, thank you. Hi, my name Jonathan Glennie. Uh, I'm a writer and researcher on international cooperation. I know, I know this is about more than aid relationships, but it did remind me of really, a really, a bit kind of changed my way of thinking quite a lot called Time to Listen, which was written by a group of researchers working for USAID a few years ago. And they came out with some, some, some uh, findings quite similar to at least some of what you're saying, which is basically things, and they, they did research on, on aid recipients all over the world. And it was almost always the same. It was great that you're working with us, you know, we appreciate it. But the way in which you engage with us is verging on patronising and verging on a kind of assault on dignity. And it matters. And it's something that a lot of, I think, people in the aid business really are up to impact and results, especially in the last few years, and are kind of moving away from 
that kind of more participatory listening approach. Given my question, actually, you talk about the way that things are now. Is there anything in your research that can tell us whether they're getting better or worse? Or in the last 10, 5, five 10, 15 years, certainly if somebody looks at the global aid um, kind of uh, sector, the, the, there was a lot of talk of participatory approaches and listening as the fundamental concept. By the way, not just for the sake of dignity, I won't go on too long, but for the sake of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're not engaging in listening, you're much less likely to achieve your objectives. Absolutely. Um, and, and that was a big theme in the early 2000s. And it feels to me that the sector as a whole has, has moved quite a long way away from that. It's much more focused on getting results by fair means or foul, rather than the means uh, of that. I wonder if you've picked up on any of that. Is that, your, is that last observation your observation in relation to how AIDS done in Australia or globally? No, absolutely globally. I don't have any particular knowledge of this. Okay. Learning. All right, so um, what is Australia doing right? Focus groups, which Australians were we, were we asking people about or which Australians were they speaking about? Um, and that last question about whether things are getting better or worse in terms of the approach, the listening approach. Do you want to start off, Dave? Mm. Okay, thank you for the question, George. So, I guess Australia's doing a lot right. And I think, you know, I'd sort of go glue back to what I said before, that this paradox is, you know, we really value this relationship, it's really important, and we want it to be better, or we want to be able to talk back how it can be better. Some of the things that were really strong in people's minds about where they saw the value of what Australia did there was a particular reference to um, disaster response. So that was a very, obviously that's a very visible, tangible expression of this relationship that people see as very valuable, um, particularly in, in rural areas. And obviously that was, uh, that was possibly more pronounced in Vanuatu and Fiji than are still in recovery phases after significant impacts from big cyclones. Um, in Solomon Islands, there was the, the impact of Ramsey was generally considered to be a very positive one, with some 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 caveats to that. And there were also particular references to work that Australia has done around inclusivity, so particularly around um, inclusivity of people living with disabilities and inclusivity of uh, increased empowerment and livelihood opportunity for women. Those were areas where it was felt that Australia was making a very, it had made a very significant um, contribution. And I would say that part of why, why this then tends to flip into what you could call a negative thing is we also heard concerns expressed that Australia, there was concern that Australia may be walking away from that, that may be backing off from very important work that they've done over a considerable period of time and a number of respondents particularly in Fiji but elsewhere expressed concern that maybe this wasn't a priority for Australia anymore and that was something that they found troubling. Um, Linda do you want to talk about focus groups? About the Australian? Uh, who are Australian? Who are the Australians that are talking to? Do you have any voice left? <laughs> I think uh, the Australians here were all Australians NGOs, people who are working there, stories, people living and working there, because like every culture and scene region. Yeah. Yeah, just on that, I, I think what's important as well is that across the board, people had 
positive experience, I think, for you know, the relationships of the individual as well, and from all them, and you spoke about, you know, in, you know some might work as well as such. But I think what comes through very clearly is that all of those person-to-person -person relationships is underpinned by a, a very significant structural inequality and, and a long history of that one, which I think is quite obvious that that's permeates the overall relationships, you know, as we talk about, you know, that's where some of the the, the notion of being and the patronising big brother, for instance, sort of comes from. Uh, uh, it's very hard to uh, disaggregate uh, personal relationships from the structural relationship between Australia and history and that sort of programs. And I think that's where it's come from. You know? So when they talk about racism, for instance, uh, uh, that were experienced, and very often that was a sort of a structural violence um, experienced uh, rather than individual in, in personal relationships. Yeah, I just wanted to add on. Yeah. Um, the, the example of the humanitarian response in Vanuatu is, is one which I, I think it's particularly interesting. Like, like all of the kinds of uh, you know, emergency and other responses. You know, Ramsey in general also well referred, you know, well referred to as an important contribution by Australia and other countries. But uh, uh, Humanitarian assistance in Vanuatu does really good work. It's over, and then you have a situation with sort of INGOs, as they were referred to in there, who are much more strongly embedded in terrain where they weren't previously. Um, and this is pushing aside some of the, the, the local organisations. And, uh, and, and, and you know, instances of this also, also cropped up um, in each of the three countries. But, but the idea of um, you know, outward intentions going in then having some longer-term consequences that are negatively received by the people there. Um, and to, this is the, the localization agenda, which, which we're, uh, it is an issue in Australian NGOs. This is one thing which came through a number of times. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, just to add on to what you were saying there, I think when we interview the youths and those people, especially the youths, it felt they, many of them came from the communities. They felt that their voices were not heard. Most of the um, discussions are held up there between the government, the different bilateral relations with different countries and the NGOs. But that is why they, they saw the advice, the sort of recommendation they um, came up with is that don't just focus up there the national goal. Go down to the communities and hear like the situation now in Vanuatu, the, the, the service delivery is still like really not really good. That's why they, they felt that they, this space to be given to them as well so they can talk directly to donors, to people who are giving this aid. So, and not just only depending on NGOs who already have their agenda. And so, yeah. I think this kind of, kind of, ends on a point, I think your comment was very valuable and I take your point that it's global and it's not just about Australia and Australia in the Pacific or the Pacific generally, but it, it strikes me that this word localization coming back to Australia after 10 years, 16 years being away, what does it mean? And why, why are we using this word localization? That the assumption in your head is that there is a ready-made package that can be tinkered with to fit a local situation. It's the antithesis of working with communities from the ground up understanding their desires, their needs, their national interests and, and building from the base up and their strengths and learning from... You just get a sense in the dialogue going on here that there's, 
nothing we could learn from the communities that we're working with in the Pacific. We're, we're, it's all on delivery mode, not, not enough on receiving mode, and I suppose that's a big part of what we were worried about. One funny positive thing, like what's getting better, um, the, some of the, the, sort of the, the public diplomacy um, that's been done by the Australian missions in the, re in the region was singled out and in a couple of instances as being something that Australia was doing. Uh, you know, putting more effort into and that was something that was being recognised. So, you know, that's, it was, it was soft diplomacy stuff and uh, that was being quite warmly appreciated. Yeah. Thank you everyone. Please send us more critiques and feedback. You have been listening to Dev Policy Talks, a podcast by the Development Policy Centre at the Australian National University. To find out more about Dev Policy and our work on Australian aid, PNG in the Pacific and global development policy, visit our website devpolicy.anu.edu.au or check out our blog at devpolicy.org where you can subscribe to our daily posts, various newsletters and this podcast. You can also connect with us on social media. And thanks for listening.